Computer, initialize Holosuite. Good evening and welcome to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 4, Episode 8, I believe, uh, Little Green Men. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. Absolutely, and as I say, every single week you should find us and follow us because we are a good time. We are great. <laughs> um, and it's not a not necessarily, you know, boasting or a humble brag or whatever, but, you know, really enjoy this show. We really enjoy talking about Deep Space Nine and kind of enlightening people to the things that you might have forgotten or have glossed over uh, in the intervening year since the show was on the air. And um, I think it's just, you know, a great, you know, pastime to have to listen to at some point or another. <laughs> so yeah i really enjoy it and i hope you do too and uh if you do find us and follow us drop us a line let us know what you like what you don't like or just that you're listening and we would uh, definitely like to hear from you and um might even give you a shout out or two at some point or another who knows um still not over the contest thing so uh i'm still a little petty right now so that might be a while down the road anyway <laughs> Anyway, on, somebody, please, I know you anybody, listeners are out there. Yes, I know you're out there. Um, put in your put in a submission. I mean, <laughs> even if you're the only person, it'd be fun to have at least one. <laughs> we we see you. We see you pop up on the thing, but whatever. Anyway, um, um, as David said, we are here to talk about Little Green Men. Um, interesting episode. Now, you know, I say that a lot. Um, but in this case, what I will say, and, we'll, and we're going to get into why, but, um, this is my move along home. So really? Yes. Oh, okay. And All we're going right. to get into why. why but, okay, so yeah. just keep that in mind. And for those of you who don't know, David, when he first watched move along home, did not enjoy it as many people did not enjoy move along home. And over the years, I have found things to enjoy about that episode, um, but this is not that for me. This is definitely my, if I can skip it, I will skip it. In fact, it's been a long time since I had watched it, so I had to go back and watch it for tonight. And um, yeah, definitely picked up on all the reasons that I don't like <laughs> this episode. So, okay. yes. We Should are I recap get into it that. then so you can avoid it? I was going to say, um, <laughs> you, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you recap this one, of course. But um, before we do that, simple uh, recap. So I feel uh, like I can do it pretty easily. All right. Well, you want to just jump right in tonight and go for Let's it? Let's do it. Let's all go right. for it. All right, recap guys. So again, this is this is Little Green Men. Uh, this one is focused heavily on Quark, Rom, and Nog. Uh, so we can say that right out the get-go. Uh, so we start off on the station, and um, uh, Rom is hosting a, a kind of going-away party for Nog, his son, who has been enrolled is is about to be enrolled in Starfleet Academy. Uh, apparently, a part of this ritual is that all of the things that the Frangi 
child has had as a child as as he goes into adulthood he sells as he goes into adulthood which is a fun little moment because everyone on the station is invited to come bid on rom's i'm sorry nog's things uh rom takes his son's pajamas and Worf takes uh his tooth sharpener uh of all things so uh that gets things going and quark shows up to grab uh rom from uh this uh, this ritual basically uh because he has just received a shuttle from his cousin gala the one who owns a moon and who got that moon in part because he got a uh, a loan from Quark. So anyway, he's finally got the shuttle he's been promised all this time, and he imagines that it's a piece of junk, so he needs Rom to go inspect it, and Rom inspects it and says, hey, it's actually great. It's in great condition. There's nothing wrong with it. We could uh, take it wherever we want, and Quark decides, well, great. Then why don't we uh, take Nog to Earth uh, you know, for his trip to Starfleet Academy, uh, but of course, Quark is going to make a illicit... Uh, smuggle some things to earth in this case some volatile chemocyte mm-hmm. so on the trip uh to earth um nog is learning about earth from a gift from o'brien and uh dr bashir that explains all of earth customs and history um but as they're traveling and they're trying to come out of warp nog realizes that something's wrong with the warp uh engine it won't drop out of warp uh, which they presume is maybe why they got this shit from Cousin Gala. Maybe it was a attempt to sabotage them. Uh, so the only way they can get out of the out of warp is for Nog to use the volatile chemocyte as part of uh, the decon- deep warp process. And they do that, but unfortunately it also causes them to go back in time to July 1947 and crash land near Roswell, New Mexico which is insinuated throughout the rest of the episode, is the uh, true history of the Roswell incident, which we'll get into a little bit more, uh, the Roswell UFO incident. And uh, Cork, being the uh, genius uh, salesman that he is, realizes that, oh, these primitive humans uh, with their warfare and all that nonsense um, would be very easy to manipulate. He can... Uh, change Earth's history into his own favor, introducing illicit technologies and futuristic technologies to uh, the 1947 uh, American military uh, and threaten to go to the, the, the Russians instead if they won't give him what he wants. There is a brief time where their you know language translators won't work, and so Rom has to get them working again. But once Quark can communicate, he basically says, uh, "I want to. Ma- I, I've been sent here on a mission uh, to inst- inst- uh, to begin trade with your planet." And uh, of course, the general in charge of keeping this whole thing hush hush uh, doesn't believe him, and so he sends one of his uh, underlings to go basically torture or at least use some truth serum uh to try and get quark to confess who he really is and what his real plans are and nog uh knowing the history of earth uh pretends that they're actually uh on some illicit mission to get them to uh, basically obey them you know hey if you don't do we say we're gonna unleash our, our our military on you um fortunately for our three Ferengi, Odo, knowing that Quark is the devious s- smuggler that he is, hitched a ride 
and he's been there the whole time, and he's been running around as a dog, and he has fixed the ship, and he tells the Ferengi, hey, uh, if you guys, we need to escape, we need to get out of here, and so they manage to, with the help of some humans, a nurse and a professor couple, uh, they help our Ferengi escape, they get back on the ship, they uh, take the ship and quickly go to a nuclear testing site, which they use that to help restart the warp engine, and using the remaining amount of chemocyte, they're able to warp back to the future, and uh, so Nog goes to Starfleet Academy, the others uh, return back to the station, Quark has to sell off the damaged spacecraft for parts, and um, Odo arrests Quark for smuggling contraband. So yeah, that's the overarching plot of the episode. Anything yep. I missed? Nope. And again, that's just like we do. We like to hit the highlights, and then we're going to get into the more specific things here and uh, break it down for you. So pretty good. You're all right. Um, we can take it from there, of course. Okay. So <laughs> I like to ask you always because obviously I've seen all these episodes a thousand and one times, and you are this is your first time watching. What was right. your overall impression? Of this episode. What did you think? Um, I would say that it's a fun little episode in the sense that we get to focus mainly on the Ferengi, especially all three of our Ferengi. This is the most time all three of them have ever spent on screen together. Mm -hmm. um, we've had the episode of them going to the Ferengi homeworld, but um, Nog wasn't along for that part of it. Um, However, I do feel that the this is another episode that suffers because of the limited time they had to tell their story. Unfortunately, it's fairly basic. Uh, oh, aliens show up. They get captured by the U.S. military. Like, the, 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 the worst scene in the whole episode is when the human humans, the professor, the nurse, and three of the army guys just walk into the room with the Ferengi and start trying to communicate and they start banging on their heads because, you know, Nog and is trying to fix the, uh, the the translator, which are apparently in their ears somewhere. And so they're kind of trying to, you know, bang the universal translators. Um, so it, it's kind of a weird scene because it's like I would think – like, let me put it this way. In movies where we treat the – you know, there's new alien life. You know, new alien life. Th those scenes are very carefully approached. You know, people put on suits – and they, there's lots of music, and there's a very serious tone. In this one, they're just, they just walk in, and they try and communicate, and it was just, it just felt kind of basic. It felt like, so, yeah. There's Go actually yeah, a yeah. reason. There's actually a reason for that. Um, this uh, episode was supposed to be kind of um, uh, a, a homage, a tribute to the early '50s. B movies that they used to do that were kind of the monster of the week movie. And oh, okay. in a lot of those in a lot of those movies, there wasn't a lot of attention to detail to things like that that you're talking about. Heavily costumed right. suits and theatrical moments or whatever. It was uh, a lot of a lot of leaps and bounds needing to be made in order to get you to the main conflict that was being featured right. in that particular movie. Um, again, costuming props things like that weren't weren't the best and i mean you could blame that on you know just the way that things were done back then because again tv was still a relatively new uh media and having this right. kind of weekly um entertainment in homes was uh still 
you know, they were still winging a lot of things. But right. sci-fi monster of the week, monster of the month movies were uh, quite popular. But this was always kind of their classic setup. You know, the aliens crash land. We don't know how to speak to them or communicate with them until someone makes a... Uh, a random breakthrough, and in this, they kind of turned that on its ear a little bit. That instead of it being the human that made the breakthrough for communication, it was our aliens doing it. They fixed their technology in order to communicate with primitive man, you know. And then, you know, also kind of laying heavily on the tropes of early science fiction, where the message from the aliens is basically a lecture on the human condition in some way, uh, you know, Quark outraged to find out that humans were conducting atom bomb tests on our own planet and yeah. also oh, that good. we you know yeah. buy poisons and smoke cigarettes and and yes. and all this stuff and you know so it was there was a lot of that and it was a, an attempt basically to kind of you know wink and a nod to those old movies showing you know kind of the the history of sci-fi right because without those things from way back then we certainly wouldn't have what we have in the nineties or beyond, you know, if they hadn't kind of proven their point there a little bit, but also kind of poking fun at the fact that a lot of that stuff was very campy, very hokey. (laughs) And it, um, and it was, it's supposed to be a fun episode. In fact, they didn't think they were going to be able to do it. This episode had been pitched over and over and over again throughout the other seasons. And they just didn't feel like they could find the right tone for it to work until now, until the fourth season. Okay. So that's when we, well, there's certainly that's when we a reason it. for it to happen this time with Nog yeah. going to Starfleet. Right. It makes it. It makes it. You know, we we now had a reason. We had enough character development from all of them, Rom, Nog, Quark, to make this make a bit more sense. You know. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it would have come up now, and then them trying to inject humor into it, and it does turn out to be a bit more of a lighthearted episode, um, despite its many, many flaws. So, um, <laughs> I feel like I should go ahead and ask you, like, do we want to move on to your, to your, why you uh, don't like it? Or should we wait a little bit longer? <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, I don't care. Uh, we can, we can do it. I'll, I'll kind of dole them out as we go through, but I will, suffice okay. to say, one of the first things that annoys the crap out of me about this episode is the smoking. Everybody is smoking and I get it. I understand that they were doing it because again, back in the fifties and at the time when you know, there's, that they're kind of doing the setting and everything that was always done in the movies to denote um, seriousness. This is a stressful, tense situation. That's how you knew the character was serious, how you knew they were a no nonsense by the book kind of individual was that they would smoke a cigarette or smoke a cigar or or whatever it was. But in this And then when they talk, they gesture very, gesture a lot. There's a lot of deep (laughs) breathing and deep sighing and the smoke trails and, all of that, that was that was a big deal, you know, and uh, they did that ad nauseum here. Like, everyone is smoking, even to the point where at one point, the scientist doctor lights a, lights two cigarettes at the same yes. time, for yes. one for himself and one for, for his uh, fiance. And it yes. just, it annoyed me so much. <laughs> and I was just like, because, and again, I've watched a lot of that very old retro sci-fi and I do understand why they were doing it but even then like to do a comparison this was quite heavy-handed and I get that that's probably because they were trying to make it make a point here with what they were doing but it just 
it really annoyed me and it stopped me from being able to like really enjoy other aspects of the show because so, it was just to be very clear you're annoyed that they were just doing it so much yes yes it was just such an obvious nod to the 40s and 50s that i was just like i i can't say like like do other things to make me think that it's in that time frame not um just rely so much on a heavy-handed prop that was used um gotcha. but yeah that one just because it's, it's, it's like the first thing you notice everyone is smoking everyone even the general when he rolls up he's got that, he's got that thick big old cigar, cigar and he's tucked always away in his jaw right and he's always biting on it yeah you're right he's not biting on, on it intensely and it never goes out like if you notice he's smoking it like like every time we see him he's got that damn cigar in his mouth it never goes out does he ever you know, finish it i don't know it's just it's there it's always there Okay, you're me. making me mad because I, I remember him doing all that, and now never, if I ever watch this episode ever again, that's all I'll be thinking about is the hey, cigar. That's, I'm sorry, I that's how that's to... all I could see <laughs> was just, and it's like, and he's got it tight in there, like it fits perfectly. Like clearly, you know, the actor, he's he. he does I was cig- gonna say, I was gonna say, I wouldn't be surprised much. at all if that actor probably really does enjoy a good cigar because I mean, it was just like the perfect spot for it. You yes, know, his uh, mouth in, had in his like mouth formed around that strategically cigar. formed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was just like, Jesus Christ! And again, it never, never goes out. It never really seems to diminish. At one point, it did look a little bit smaller, but then like the very next scene, big cigar again. So I was just yeah. like, he's got the magic cigar of the '40s in his mouth, and I, it was awful. I just didn't like it. Didn't like it. Right. Um. What else didn't I like? Oh, the overly optimistic, supremely naive uh, woman officer, right? The nurse. She's yeah. yeah, she's there, and she is, and because of her, her fiance, who is the, I guess, the brains of the outfit, gets invited in to com- converse with our aliens. Um, but everything she says is just so wide-eyed and moony and even at one point even her own fiance calls her he's like oh ever ever the dreamer you know yeah. and it's just like it's that overly contrived language that again was featured in the 40s and 50s in that early stuff you're but it's right. like guys come as on. you say this you're right because they become the pro like they're the that's the reason this episode almost doesn't that's why it doesn't have enough content from the from the ferengi our ferengi groups angle it's because you're right they turn into the the protagonists, the, they have yeah. whole scenes to themselves. And it's just them. Whole, like, it's like, and it's always the constant close-up of the two of them together. Yes. And she's just looking at him with such abject adoration. And he's doing that oh, classic 50s. Oh, and he does the 50s, same to her. Yeah. But, yeah, 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 but he also does that classic 50s stare off into the distance, you know, while she's like over here yeah. in silhouette talking. And I, I, I couldn't stand it. And then there's, you know, the scene at the end where they help them, yeah, help the aliens leave when they're back in the Jeep. And they're just... So in love with each other, and yes, they have to have their passionate kiss, kiss like, as the ship is warping out over their head. And I was yeah. just like, "Oh my god!" And then <laughs> uh, that, You're and totally then right, Perry. yeah, You're and then totally there's the right. scene, the scene where earlier, you know, where they're together, and again, it's that it's that cigarette scene where he's lighting both cigarettes, and she's talking right. about one day, who knows, we'll be able to travel to the stars and faster than like this and everything, and he's like. Gee golly, but he's yeah. like, gee oh, golly, yeah. all I can, all I can think about. You're talking about all this great stuff, and we got these aliens, but all I can think about is how pretty you're you gonna look in dress. your wedding dress. Yeah. And I just, yeah. I, I, the, 
I couldn't roll my eyes. Harder. You know, Perry, the more you talk about it, like for some reason I was able to just kind of just go for it. But yeah, uh, I can see where if you're in the wrong mood one day and you're watching this episode <laughs> and you'd be like, why is this happening? Yes. And then it yes. would just grind you from then on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that kiss at the end. I remember seeing that and being like, Dang, it's like a full ten seconds. Like right, it's like overly long, right? And they're just and the heads are moving. They're mushing. Well, and I just remember thinking, like, you guys just punched a general in the face. Like, you guys are so dead. Like, what are you doing? Right. (laughs) Like, you're having a way too much self indulgence in this moment. And that, but that was also always the case in those fifties movies. People would disobey orders and would assault other officers or people or whatever, and there was seemingly no repercussions. Ever for anything, and I mean that's kind of some of the stuff that we've moved away from in in sci-fi and in Trek in general. You know, if you do some of those things, you better have a pretty good reason for doing it, and you're still going to face some kind of reprimand. But typically, there's other mitigating circumstances which kind of make what you did okay. You know, like we're right. we're going to give you a pass this time. But yeah, it's just like, uh, nope, n- none of that for these guys. They're going to sail off and they're going to get married, and you know, and, and that's it. That's that's the yeah. end. Um, yeah, I just all of that stuff. I really didn't enjoy um, the way that they wanted us to enjoy it. And you know, I never did. This isn't a case of oh, I watched it the first time and I loved it and thought it was cute and funny and whatever else. And now over the years of watching it multiple times, no, I distinctly remember when I watched this episode being upset that. This was the episode that I got this week. Following Starship down to this was just <laughs> just not for me. I, I never enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, watched it again to discover I still don't. Still don't right. enjoy it. And there are more you know, things were, that we're going to talk about. <laughs> if I were to fix this episode based on all that, I would say that because my, my main critique has been that basically the Ferengi angle has been – it was just minimal. Like, Quark promises to give... Let me put it this way. Quark promises all this great technology and has no way of bringing about any of that. His ship is damaged. He's he's not connected to the future. How is he going to create, you know, replicators? How is he going to do anything that he promises? He might know about it, but I don't trust that Quark or Nog or, or Rom can reproduce any of that stuff, certainly with the technology that's available at the time. So I feel like Quark's little ambitious play about I'm going to control Earth society with, with my future technology makes sense for all of two seconds until you realize the ramifications of all that and how, how do you bring it about. So if they had focused more on trying to make the Quark-Ferengi group angle work – and let's say that the the translators just don't work the whole time, um, and then so the episode becomes seeing, you know, humanity from the perspective of we can't understand them, but we can. The fun of the episode might have been, you know, knowing what they're trying to say or communicate because you know we know we're we're humans we're we understand American military whatever or not so we we could know what they're trying to communicate to our Ferengi friends but we can only hear and understand the Ferengi talking to each other uh Quark complaining to Nog and all that and then Odo like Odo in the background would have been fun like Odo popping up and like 
the, the humans miss it. Like, that would have been really scary. If the humans had realized Odo was there, they'd have freaked yeah. out uh, real bad. But Cork uh, and the yeah, others would have been Martians. <laughs> yeah, I think that would have been way more interesting, too, is to have, like, Odo trying to figure out a way to, you know, get them out of there sooner than what we see. Right. And I did enjoy the part where, you know, we're hearing the Ferengi language for the first time because, you know, it's the yeah. humans observing them and, you know, we're hearing that through the through the one-way mirror and everything. Yeah. I enjoyed that because, I mean, with Star Trek, I mean, that's always been kind of the, the main, you know, plot device of how we understand everybody is the universal <coughs> translator, you know. Right. And um, it, was a, it wasn't really until the show uh, Star Trek Enterprise where we kind of got into the foundations of the universal translator. And so there were a lot of, there were a lot of scenes in that show that were about translating alien languages. So you got a lot more of hearing native languages and seeing that process filtered through the communications officer, Hoshi Sato and um, how we, how we, you know, work it out. But right. Before that show, obviously, it was Deep Space Nine, so we didn't really have that. So getting that opportunity to kind of hear what that language sounds like, I found that very interesting, and I appreciated that. But again, yeah, like you said, it was it was very short-lived, and um, it actually made the episode more interesting. And then once they got to talking basic, you know, whatever you want to call it, English, basic English, tongue, yeah. whatever, it just, I was bored. I like, Almost immediately, I didn't care anymore. Because right. I guess the thought of like... We're, we see it from, we're hearing Quark speak English and we know the humans aren't in on what he's saying because they don't understand the language and listening to him critique humanity and his, you know, also watching his brain work through the ways in which he could take advantage of things. And he's just kind of, you know, laying out these grand plans and they can't understand any of that. I, I did like a lot of that. But yeah, then once it gets to that point of he, they now understand everybody, they kind of they lose their edge as aliens. They lose their mystery. Right. Even the general says it. He's like, you may be an alien, but you remind me of my, you know, brother-in-law who's a yeah, crappy car, car salesman, you know, which yeah. I I did not, that part I really didn't like. And mainly because that's always been one of the aspects of the Ferengi that um, I've just never enjoyed. That basically when we get right down to it, they are kind of the, um, crappy versions of humans, right? All the kind of more negative, money-hungry, greedy things that we kind of are supposed to be putting down and rising above, they kind of embody. And right. um, for him to suddenly go from a little bit of fear, a little bit of hesitation, some awe of the aliens, to now he's just equating him with his jerk-off brother from Michigan who sells crappy cars. <laughs> Yeah, it just, yeah, lost its appeal again. Yeah, so. yeah, and actually, so how do they explain how the universal translator works in those episodes from Enterprise you mentioned? Because yeah, so it makes sense. It, it would make sense if the Ferengi, you know, if Quark and them could understand humans because it's a device they have inside their own ears, but that mm-hmm. they weren't able to communicate to them because they don't mm-hmm. have, you know, they can't they don't... like when. When Quark first introduces himself after the Universal Translators are working, he just says his his name and who he is, and but it's not clear exactly how he is now. I mean, he's just speaking English as far as we can tell, right. and it's like, wait a minute, how does that work? But I mean, you just let it happen in the point of the episode. But I, so first off, how does that work? But also, I want to say again, I think that could have made a fun part of the episode if 
our group understood the humans and therefore knew if they were getting in trouble, but they couldn't communicate. And so they could start getting a whole kinds of shenanigans of um, we know what they're saying. We know what they're afraid of. We know what they think about us and we can manipulate them, but we can't communicate either and how that might cause its own uh, shenanigans. But anyway, how do they explain the universal translator? So in, and I, I think I now see where you're, where we're going to come into a problem with this thing, but in, um, Enterprise, basically the at the point in Enterprise where the show starts, humans have been working in partnership with Vulcans for a while now to develop our own warp engines and uh, uh, launch ships, right? And so obviously we're supposed to take into take that into consideration and know that there's been a large exchange of information and technologies, and um, there's a lot of uh, people who are specializing in linguistics. And there's one person in particular whose name is Hoshi Sato, who is like, she's just like a lingual genius, right? She can speak pretty much every language on earth. She teaches at a school in, I think it's Buenos Aires, is where she's based when the show first starts. And she's teaching another group of people to do what she does. And the captain, uh, the soon-to-be captain of Enterprise, selects her to be on the mission so that she can um, develop what is really a very primitive, rudimentary universal translator, which can handle whatever languages the Vulcans know and whatever languages human humanity knows at the time. And to use those plus her own innate ability to understand language to program and expand the programming of that primitive translator with any new race that comes along. And so the first race that they are dealing with are Klingons. And so the, the, um, again, the Vulcans have a very basic Vulcan to Klingon translation matrix. And then she uses that to kind of bridge the gaps with that and hum and so make a human Klingon one and kind of ties everything in. And then as the show develops and they go on to other subsequent missions, she keeps doing, replicating that process. She's able to pick up on the syntax and structure of certain languages and can help feed certain things in. And then based upon you know, common ship designs or whatever, she can kind of pick up on what certain things are. And she's kind of building the database as they're going. So that pretty okay. soon she's got a working uh, real-time translator that will receive whatever language is being spoken at the time and broadcast it in whatever language is necessary for the rest of them. Or if they can't broadcast it, she is there to interpret whatever the readout is and can and can then speak what those words are. So then the the universal translator over the years and other iterations, like when we see in Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and so forth, the universal translator is built into the um, communicators that are worn on their chests. And as we see here, uh, some species have them implanted in their heads. Um right. And it basically does the same thing. It Whatever language is being spoken at the time, it hears it, interprets it in real time, and broadcasts it for the other person to understand. understand. Right. And so this is why I was saying I, could, I think I can see where we're going to have a problem because their universal translators in this episode are obviously internal and they're broken. And Rom ends up having to reset them in order for them to understand the humans which in right. turn 
lets the humans understand them. So there has to be some component of the universal translator that not only receives, but also broadcasts. So that is the part that, yeah, that is the part that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense because it, it would, it would make sense if everybody in your universe has a universal translator because then if it's broadcasting then you are you can it can then be received and whatever but um since as we see here the humans here don't have universal translators so for it to work that means that thing must be um transmitting some kind of signal that they are able to pick up on or make them make humans pick up on to interpret whatever is being said by Quark and so forth. Because we see that Quark doesn't actually speak English. He doesn't speak, um, uh, yeah, standard, whatever you want to call it. He right. speaks the Ferengi language, and then the Universal Translator fixes it for whomever's listening. Right. So, right. Um, so yeah, there's that's a that last part, that broadcasting part, is a mystery that uh, <laughs> is, isn't addressed in the 24th century. But what makes sense when we're watching it in Enterprise, because remember, Enterprise is the show that's set in the 22nd century. So the right. broadcasting aspect of it is Hoshi. Hoshi is our broadcaster. She is receiving it, she interprets it, and then she tells the crew or tells the captain, whomever it is, what is being said. Right. And then um, she also makes it, and, and often, oftentimes whenever the aliens in Enterprise are speaking, they're speaking on the view screen. So again, the view screen is picking up the broadcast from the other ship, interpreting what is being said, and allowing everybody on the bridge to hear the broadcast in their native uh, language. So, right. um, so, so that's, yeah. In the in the Star Trek movies, the J.J. Abrams ones, Uhura is also a translator. Is that true of her character in the original series? She's a yes, yes, it is. She expert. is. Uh, she is also a linguist. She is a top-notch linguist. And there's like, there's so the way they kind of make it in Trek so far that I can, as I can understand it, there, there, are, anybody can be trained in communications. Anybody can be uh, a lingual, whatever. But there are certain people who have an innate knack for being able to pick up and interpret languages better than anyone else. And Uhura right. is one of those people. So is Hoshi. Um, Uhura is another one. There's just there's just certain ones who are just like, there's just something about language, they can do it. And um, they've kind of expanded upon that a bit for Uhura in Strange New Worlds. Um, uh-huh. she's, she's Cadet Uhura in Strange New Worlds. And um, there's a scene where they ask her how many languages she can speak. And like I think they guess at one time, it's like the captain says that she can speak something like, 15 or 17 languages or whatever and she's like actually i speak 37 and everybody just kind of like stares at her <laughs> and i mean even i was like thir- i didn't even know there were 37 languages like what languages did you pick up like where did you yeah. you know and they and they kind of give an explanation for where she went to get so many different languages but yeah it's just like that's that's her thing um there was something else i was going to say about the universal translator um well while you're thinking about it, i just want to mention yeah. i have a yeah. friend he is a linguist and he's one of those people who, yeah, he gets languages. He, he loves it. He, uh, he, uh, briefly was on a team that was sent to uh, a nation to help translate the Bible. Unfortunately he was, he got sick. And so he had to come back. Uh, but he taught himself Japanese just by watching anime and stuff like that. Um, loves languages when he talks, like if, if you're reading something and it's from uh, a, a culture with, with, you know, a certain, like, when we read the Bible or we read C.S. Lewis stuff, 
he'll read it with like a British accent. Like he'll try and give it the authentic <laughs> accent, which is just hilarious because it basically meant every time we would get together and talk about C.S. Lewis, uh, read the C.S. Lewis stuff. Like he was always the guy we'd go to for reading, you know, all right, it's time to read the passage that we're going to talk about. And so you go for it. Um, so yeah, those people actually exist. And he's, yeah, uh, he's I, I know. Yeah, I know they do. I've seen some of them <laughs> I, it work. You know, I can remember taking different language courses and, it always seemed like there was always one person in my class who just, man, they just, they didn't Absorbed just speak it. it, but they were just, yeah, if you didn't know any better, you would think that was the language they spoke. Me, on the other hand, I have absolutely no, no luck, no ear for languages whatsoever. I have tried, and I mean, I have yeah. really, really tried, and it just, it doesn't take for me. And I no, mean, me I don't want to, I don't want to say that, like, I just kind of you know, unwilling or whatever. Cause there are everybody's always like, Oh, anybody can learn a language. I, I just don't think that I can. I've tried. <laughs> I have a deep respect for those people who can, who can get it. But I mean, right. I took, I took Spanish. I took French. I even yes, took German and Russian here. at one point and yeah. none of them. None That's of also them true for me. When I was in elementary school, I was at a private school and we had to start learning Spanish and I think third through fifth grade. And then in fifth grade, they tried teaching us Latin didn't take i got to high school started trying taking french did a year of french didn't like it switched to german for a girl of course being an idiot that i am uh, i took the two years of german and nothing <laughs> so, i get it <laughs> yeah i don't know why i'm mean, like the the german and russian ones for me were definitely my choice and i don't remember what i was what I was thinking, what I was going through in life, where I thought, oh, you've had absolutely zero success with language. It's not your fault. It's the language's fault. So go pick <laughs> another one. And it just, Ru Russian was a nightmare for me. I don't, I like, it just, that one, I, I couldn't even begin to, like, I couldn't say anything. Like, I barely remember how to say anything in, in French or Spanish. But yeah, they're right. just, Russian was a nightmare. Um but yeah, I to those people who can do it, who can you know already speak like seven, ten languages, whatever. Uh, man, you're you're doing something amazing, and I hope that you have you know a job or something that uses that talent, that skill, whatever. But it's definitely definitely not me. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, on the, back on the subject of the Universal Translator, I mean that's there was a, that's what I was going to say in in Discovery. In the show Discovery in the second season, there is a uh, an episode where the ship basically kind of goes haywire, and it starts making everybody speak in different languages. But not only do they speak in different languages, but it like it's cycling them through languages. So at one point, uh, like the captain speaks French. And then at another point, and like, like the captain speaks French and our main character, Michael Burnham, they were talking together. She started speaking um, Spanish. But then like in the very next scene, she was now speaking Chinese and someone on the bridge was speaking Arabic, I think. And then like not only that, but then like the consoles were now displaying information in different languages. Like one was displaying in Klingon, another one was like Latin. And so like, it was all about how the universal translator was malfunctioning. And so it was presenting a bunch of information in the different languages. And I didn't think about it at the time, but in thinking about it now, like it, I understand that it was a malfunction, but still that meant that somewhere in the settings for the universal translator, it was recognizing whomever was working 
on a particular station or whatever and would show the information in their language. There was no kind of like standardized language set. And it eventually took them having to call up the first officer who was sick at the time to, you know, come up and help them because they couldn't get a handle on anything. Nothing was working because one minute it would be in Portuguese and the next minute it would be in, you know, Tau Seti, whatever the hell. So they needed somebody who could speak multiple languages, fix it. And the first officer on Discovery Spoke 94 languages, so, of course... 94. 94, right. (laughs) Don't go overboard with those or anything. (laughs) Yeah, well, it helps he's an alien, so that was the the other part of it, too. Uh, Side note on that, that first officer is probably one of the more unique characters that that they've come up with in Trek, Hmm. bar none. So, um, but yeah, he spoke 94 languages, so he was able to help them fix the universal translator and at least temporarily get it working on the bridge so they could go elsewhere and fix it for the rest of the ship. But it was a very interesting scene to watch as they were all trying to work together, but no one spoke the same language at the same time. And then it kept shifting around. So, um, yeah, there's still some magic there with the UT that hasn't been totally fleshed out and explained. And, um, who knows? Maybe we'll eventually get there one day where somebody finally explains how it works. Because they've done enough between all the shows to give us big chunks of what it takes to kind of have this thing. But that last little, those finer details that show the linkages, that hasn't been done yet. Okay. So. I'm curious, because um, when you were initially saying that the, the Universal Translator was like making people talk in Spanish and then like Chinese, I was like, man, what? But then it makes more sense if like if if I'm hearing you, Perry, talk to me, it's not that the machine was making you talk in Chinese. It's making me hear you talk in Chinese yes. as if I understood yes. Chinese, but I don't. Yes. So it's 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 communicating the wrong language from you to me. Yes, um, not that was not the, you that saying was, it. Yeah. Yes, that was the breakdown. The way that it was in the Discovery episode. One minute everybody seemed to be speaking English, and then. When they first started noticing the breakdown, it was between the captain and the first officer. And again, he just kind of, like, she says something to him, but it's in Spanish. And he turns to her to question her, but what he says comes out in French. And so then they, like, are staring at each other, and then they walk out onto the bridge, and it's absolute chaos. Because everybody (laughs) is speaking a different language, and the screens are are popping up, showing different languages. One's in Klingon, one's got some Arabic language floating across it, another one's got something else entirely that, uh, some alien, whatever. Like, there was just all of that going on. I like the idea that the writing would also be different. Like, I think of Worf on on, uh, Next Generation, you know, on the Enterprise, and you know, Picard says, what does it say? Like, what's what's the reading? And, you know, Worf is reading it, and he says, I have two torpedoes ready for my... You know, he's, he's, he says something. And it makes sense that, yeah, Worf is reading... Maybe it's Klingon. I mean, he grew up on Earth, so maybe it's English, whatever. But, like, yeah, they're, they're reading in their own language, and only when yeah. they get together to communicate do they are they able to communicate across... Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a fascinating idea, actually. It actually makes perfect sense because if you think about it, I mean, we already have language barriers now. And if we had a device that didn't make it necessary for people to have to learn other languages, but could instead just be natural and comfortable speaking your native tongue, and then the the device would pick that up and broadcast to whomever you were speaking to in their native language in real time, 
then I think it would obviously smooth conversation. Now, I know there were some companies a few years ago who were working on it. I don't know how far into um, development of the product they they are or, or they came. There was a company, I believe it was called Simons, that had developed something akin to a, they were calling it a universal translator, but it was this large circular thing that you, that they, I remember seeing the promo for it and it was huge and it like sat up on your chest, you know, and it was like right here, but it was like a, basically like a speaker. And so right. as you spoke, it would, you, you would broadcast the language, but you had to set the thing to whatever language. language it was. So like right. if you were in, if you were in Spain or wherever it was, you could set it to wherever you were and it right. would broadcast just in that language. So then if you went well, somewhere else, you I, I know, I've certainly used Google Translate at work a couple times. Usually people who speak Spanish, who don't speak English, who have come in, and they already know they can pull up Google Translate. And it, I mean, we weren't using the voice-to-text, or like the text-to-voice part. We were using voice-to-text to communicate, but it wasn't like reading out what you were saying necessarily. But yeah, that technology is definitely realistic. I mean, we, we have... Yeah proto versions of it as it, as, we, as we speak so and they're not and they're certainly not yeah they're certainly not perfect but we're getting there and i mean i think it's a very interesting thing that we are you know in the path to develop i think that one day we will get there or we'll have something that can just do that for us but yeah. um yeah it makes me wonder there. about like when Keiko O'Brien was trying to talk to uh kai win or i guess she was just medic win at the time about the scientific nature of the wormhole, which they call, you know, the tipple of the prophets, you know, are, is the system having to invent words on the fly, basically at times? I mean, imagine it has to, whenever you say a word that's not in that language yet, you're introducing a new concept, a new phrase, a new word. It has to basically invent that word for that language to communicate it. Um, that's well, actually kind of co an interesting idea. If that well, I, think, I think part of that I think part of that shows in the breakdown, like for example, in the episode Starship Down, where um, Kira is fasting, and you know we're seeing her and Jadzia sitting on the bridge, and oh, right. Jadzia yeah. asks her if she wants some food, and she says no, that it's Hamara, so it doesn't right. translate to whatever whatever that would be we just hear it as hamara the Bajoran literally word. the word Bajoran right word for it yeah and then when kira is praying for cisco when he gets hurt we don't hear her prayer in english we hear the Bajoran prayer so i mean if this was you know uh to make a more contemporary thing like if we were listening to somebody who was praying and say you know arabic for example um, if right. you spoke Arabic, you would understand what that prayer, what they were saying in that prayer. And right. we could get a translation of that prayer. If you don't understand it, somebody can translate it for you. But in right. this case, again, the translator, the universal translator failed. And so we were hearing the prayer in its natural language. So right. I think there are, even in, even for as advanced as we see them in Deep Space Nine, there are still language breakdowns on some things. And that's what we're getting in those situations. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating subject. <laughs> yeah, really is. It actually totally distracts from this terrible episode. Um, so now I do want to point out a couple of things really quick, just for our uh, the sake of history here. Um, the uh, the general, General Denning, 
is played by Charles Napier, who is a long-credited sci-fi actor. And he also had a little bit of Trek history to him as well, because he appeared in the 1960s Star Trek The Original Series as a character named Adam in an episode titled uh, The Way to Eden, which is a very interesting episode in which the Enterprise encounters, for all intents and purposes, space hippies. Um, they're a gr- they really are. They're a group of young people who are traveling, looking for this planet that they've, you know, called Eden, in which um, once you're there, all of your suffering ends. Whatever diseases you have, whatever your issues are, all of it just goes away. And they're fleeing from the so-called utopia that Earth and other cultures uh, and other planets like Earth claim that they have, and they're searching for true freedom. And part of the Enterprise's objection to this is their influence tends to take people out of doing, living their tr- their normal life, what we see as a normal life. You know, many of the crew kind of stop paying attention to their duties, and they're kind of getting lost in this kind of carefree nature and not paying attention to very important things like ship operations, for example. And um, another part of it, too, is that the leader of this uh, group, it turns out that he is... Um, He's a, he's a deceiver. He's not really doing this to look for any kind of true freedom or whatever. It turns out he's got some kind of rare disease, which he is not. He's he's a carrier for, but not afflicted by. He's always patient okay. zero. So he has to go to this planet in the hopes that he can be cured or whatever of it. But he's dragging along all of these people with him, and there's concern mm. that they're obviously going to die because of them being around patient zero. Yeah. Here. And, uh, yeah, Charles Napier, again, he plays a young guy named um, uh, Adam who is dressed in the weirdest outfit I have ever seen in my life and plays this weird cross between, like, a a lyre and a guitar. And it's it's a trippy scene even for the 60s. Um, But a little backstory about him, of course, is that, you know, he thoroughly um, disliked being Adam in that episode. And uh, when they came back to doing this episode, Little Green Men, and they asked him to be in the in the episode, he agreed, but with the caveat that he not play a space hippie and not have to dress in any, <laughs> any kind of... Oh, he played the exact opposite character in this instance. Yes, <laughs> yes. He, he didn't want to be dressed in any kind of strange alien garb whatsoever, so he was the perfect fit as the general here in yeah, this episode. Yeah, cigar chomping so, general. Yes. Yeah. And so then, of course, we have to talk about, you know, the the Roswell incident, which was, you know, July 8th, 1947, which is when this is supposed to have occurred, which, again, the story was the, you know, crashed weather balloon. And, um, you know, you can look all this stuff up, of course, but the gist of that is basically that, Harry Truman, President Truman, was basically committing the U.S. to a massive offensive against communism, and they had launched a bunch of uh, balloons to kind of like spy to pick up on where communists, wherever they may be hiding, right? Right. And uh, this caused a bit of a sensation with people seeing these strange objects in the sky, which led to uh, the whole alien 
you know, stuff that went down. And in particular, when one crashed near Roswell, New Mexico, several years later, the story came out that it was not a weather balloon that actually crashed. It was a UFO, and these little green men were being sequestered at Area 51 and all, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. That's that's kind of where all of this sprang out. And I just thought it was very interesting to not only talk about that, but also the interesting parallel of uh, using weather balloons for spy mastery stuff and here we are 2023 and we just had our own run in with spy balloons yeah. from uh, I guess they were said they were coming from China yeah, uh, yeah a series of them I mean America shot down two I think and then I think um, Canada got one as well well so there was there were people who were saying that maybe they just got trigger happy and just started shooting down anything they could because some of those instances some of those other things they shot down they were having trouble confirming what they shot. <laughs> they were just like, oh, we're not going to let any more spy balloons in, so anything that looks right. like a spy balloon gets gets shot out of the sky just for looking anything, funny. Anything <laughs> floating that we didn't put up there, yeah. it's coming down real yeah, people fast. Were joke, people were joking about poor little Timmy's balloon got <laughs> you know, got loose and got, uh, you know, got yeah, chasing it down. Uh, yeah, so anyway. But, you know, I mean, I think that's just interesting that here we are some, you know, 50 years later, 60 years later, however long it is, and we're kind of doing, having a go at the same thing here. You know, we're still dealing with spy balloons. (laughs) What goes around comes around. Everything old is new again, right? That's the 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 phrase, you know? So, uh, yeah. Um, And and, and it was was the same thing, you know, at first – you know, they said it was a weather balloon, but that was one of the things that came out to you. No, that was no weather balloon. That was aliens. Then there's <laughs> aliens. They're back, you know. So we've got better resolution cameras now than ever before in the history of humanity and yet still couldn't determine, is it a weather balloon? Is it an alien? <laughs> you know, and we've had a, a series of of crazy things cropping up over the couple, last couple of years. Remember the strange silver obelisks that were appearing in deserts and just random places in like what was it? I think there's one that popped up in like Scotland or something. You know, uh, do you remember I think that? I remember hearing stuff like that, but I was always, I always thought that those were always proved to have been just someone. I don't know doing if, something. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't I, know I the just, details. But. Yeah, I just assumed that it was. I remember when the first one appeared in the in the desert here in the United States. And just a big shiny piece of steel that was shaped like a, yeah, just like a triangular obelisk that was just out there. And no one knew how it got there, and there didn't seem to be any obvious tracks leading up to it or anything like that. And it was just there, and then it was there for like a number of days, and then just as mysteriously as it appeared, it disappeared. And then like, I think a week went by, and then another one popped up in like Scotland or Nova Scotia or something like that. And it was just there. And then same thing. It just it was there, and then it was there for like maybe three or four days, and then gone. And then another one popped up somewhere else. And I think they only did it like three times. And then after that, I haven't heard of any more of these things coming up. But as far as I know, no one has claimed responsibility for these strange things appearing. Um, just right. um, just just there. So huh. um, I, I think Google that, search it, brings up some articles that. You could peruse, uh, I guess, on that. So I'll have to if you want that for fun at yeah. some point. <laughs> I just think that all these strange things—it just proves that COVID broke some people. 
<laughs> some some people's brains just they couldn't handle the well that's actually a great indoors order why no one for no why no one saw them happen everyone was indoors and so someone decided it, i'm gonna break quarantine and have some fun <laughs> right no one will see me because no one's outside and so yeah, yeah they just do the thing but yeah i just think that people just were in, intensely bored and the first opportunity they had to go outside they were like i'm gonna get real weird and just started doing stuff so um yeah um but yeah that's just par for the course and i mean like i said we we did this stuff in the 50s and here we are still doing it 2023 you know so um but yeah the roswell incident is is interesting in the fact that it was so closely tied to the uh communist scare and what was born out of that was this hunger for otherworldly stuff which led to a lot of sci-fi programming so yeah there you go the the birth of sci-fi television is all because harry truman was like i want to kill communists (laughs) so which we also hear a, a indirect reference to truman in the episode where general denning calls him a uh what's he calling he calls him a, a piano. Yeah, he calls him a piano playing Democrat. But he's got one thing right. I don't trust that that Martian anymore. He doesn't trust that Martian anymore than I do, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, that piano playing Democrats finally got one thing right. You know, which is <laughs> which is the first time in Trek history that a sitting president or well, the, any president was referred to on the mm-hmm. show in any way, even obliquely. So this was the first time that they had done that. So. Gotcha. Um, there's no yeah. Nixon head in a jar like on Futurama or somewhere. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but Star Trek likes to do like a lot of weird name dropping where it will, like it'll tell you like two humans and an alien, you know. And that always used to used to crack me up. And they'd be like, "How do you want to do this? We've got three styles on record. You can do it like Mozart. You could do it like Beethoven. Or you could do it like blah 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 from SETI sixteen or whatever." It was always always and would always laugh because they almost always, whenever they, whenever they made their choice, they always picked the alien one. Always picked the <laughs> alien one. So, um, I just think that's, it, it's a great way to get around having to give any credit to, like, um, artists living or dead, right? We don't have to worry about if we, if we're not pitch perfect or not, because we're doing it like this alien. Hmm. Right. There you go. Right. Well, <sighs> I think we've pretty much nailed down this episode. Um, any redeeming qualities that you can see in this one that I may have? Um, I guess over? the only thing we would just be interested in saying is at the very end, Odo does arrest Quark. I don't know. Is this the first time of being arrested in that capacity? I would imagine it's not. But it seems like Quark and Odo have always had a will or they won't they arrest, you know, get a will he arrest him or not kind of relationship. So it seems like he's, he's this is a new thing to be arresting Quark. Is that I would say that he's statement? I would say he's arrested him several times, but it almost seems like he only arrests Quark when it's for things small enough that he'll get out of jail for in a couple of weeks, you know? Like it's not he never truly just... seems to arrest him for anything serious, and when it does seem like it's serious, Typically, it ends up revealing something far more dangerous, and so it's like, was Quark truly guilty, or was he kind of helping out here? 
Right. And, well, that episode where Worf learned that Odo, as security officer, knows what he's doing, that was the insinuation is that Quark, it, it, whether he knew it or not, was helping Odo with his investigation. Yeah. It's almost so. like Quark, Quark knows when, like, it, no matter what crime it is he's committed, he understands that there are certain ones that are slap-on-the-wrist crimes versus ones that are this is serious jail time. And on the ones that are serious jail time, he tends to cooperate with Odo. Other things he tries to scheme his way through, like unloading chemocyte, for example, it's dangerous or it's illegal, but it's also very dangerous. So it's just like, "Mm, you're mitigating some of this here, you know? And then, like he said, (laughs) a lot of the evidence burned up, you know? So there was no, nothing really to to show for what they were doing. Also, yeah. shout out to the story about C- Cousin Gala, because um, we've heard the mention of Cousin Gala a few times, and now here he is trying to kill Quark. So I'm ready to meet Cousin Gala whenever this one happens. <laughs> oh, are you hinting towards some future episode there, are you? No, I just think that um, he's got to be, nice be a to very interesting, yeah, if he can not only afford his own moon, which we know he has, but also afford this this ship and also try to sabotage it, um, he'd be an interesting Ferengi to see. So, who knows? <laughs> but yeah. But what did you... I think you already said, like, what did you think of this episode? You you liked it. You thought it was fun, right? I, I My opinion of it is that it's fun to see all three of our main Ferengi together for an extended period of time. But unfortunately, the episode doesn't do enough with the premise to really knock it out of the park. Yeah. Okay. This, this episode could have been a lot more. And I, as you pointed out, the overemphasis on the nurse professor cu- couple takes away from our characters and, in fact, gets overly indulgent with, with them. Yeah. Um, so, I don't think you you can't hate this episode nearly as much as I hate Move Along Home, though. I'm, I'm oh, gonna make that very clear. Know. <laughs> well, I mean, I have found redeeming things about Move Along Home, as I've said, but in this episode, it just it just grated on my nerves a lot for the yeah. the the contrived tropes and the hokiness that was brought back up, and then just really just beat to death here. I just couldn't stand it. So, um, right. I was glad for that to be. For this to be over and done with, basically. Right. Um, right. But yeah, okay then. So I still think that once you've watched this one, you know, you don't really have to go back to it. It's interesting, though, that the creators, the writers, and the executive producers of the episode, they all love this episode. It's actually been on a list of uh, episodes not to skip. Um, Armin Shimmerman, who plays Quark, he has shouted this episode out as one of his okay. favorites. Um you know, that he, he loved the interplay of the story, you know, and then, you know, again, other people liked it for the fun, the the comedic aspects of the episode itself, but um, not me. I'm going to be the dissenting opinion here. I, I just think this episode was unnecessary, so. Gotcha. I mean, my, my opinion is that the plot of this episode should have been worked through again. Uh, the, yeah. the initiating premise is fine, again, I've had critiques of time jumping before, so I'll mm-hmm. let that pass. But um, yeah, this episode could have deserved, I think, a little bit better storytelling. If 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 their attempt in this episode was to do an om- an homage to past nineteen forties fifties storytelling, um, 
put it this way. It wasn't so obvious to me that, that they were that's what they were doing for me to catch on to it in a direct okay. way. And so it, it basically falls flat in that sense because unless they were to overtly say, we're doing an homage, it just comes off as an episode that missed its target. But that was basically – if, if that, that's their point. Like I missed their intention and therefore it comes off to me as if they, did, they missed their mark. But that's not – the mark I expected is not what they were shooting at. So anyway – but yeah, yeah. I guess well, okay, I'm just gonna leave it at that. I don't like this one. David has found his, I guess, things to like about it. Um, what are your? Anybody has any other thoughts about this episode? I'd be interested to hear them. Um, let us know. We've told you several different ways you can reach us because we're on all the social medias, of course. Um, you can also uh, find us anywhere that you listen to uh, podcasts. Ask the Fire Capes, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I happen to do it on Spotify. Uh, next week, we will be back. We will have um, some new stuff. We'll have a Trek After Dark as well that you can listen to and enjoy and critique, uh, of course, and let us know about. Um, but yeah, until next time, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys. <laughs>